Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinance that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Christina, for reading scripture for us this morning. And before I share some of my thoughts with you from the reading we just heard, I wanted to take a moment to do two things. I wanted to share with you a word of thanks, and then I also wanted to remind you to accept the invitation. So first, a word of thanks. So it's been three months and a few days since I've been here, and people often ask me, how's it going? And I'm finding that I am constantly saying this to people. I'm telling them that 
every day I'm learning something new. And it sounds like an exaggeration, but it really isn't. Whether it's meeting new people or learning more about the inner workings of our congregation, every day I'm learning something new. And this happened to me on Thursday. Thursday night, I was on a Zoom call in a finance meeting. Yes, in a finance meeting, and I learned something new about our church. First of all, just the reality that the grace of God is at work in the hearts of all of us. And where I see that grace being expressed very tangibly is in the way in which we continue to, continue to generously share our gifts and our time and our, our, all of our efforts to make National Presbyterian Church the place that it is. God's grace leading you to faithfully give. And here's why that's so important. The summer months are usually times when many of us, and rightly so, take some time off for vacation and other trips out of town. And many churches do what National Presbyterian Church does. We budget for those months where the attendance will be lower and of course the levels of giving will predictably drop. But here's what I learned on Thursday. This did not happen this summer at National Presbyterian Church. This summer's level of faith giving, and this is what I'm learning, that it actually outpaced previous summers in recent memory. And so we closed the month of August with over 1.7 million in year-to-date giving. And through your generosity, what this does, it puts us on par for our budget as we head into the fall. NPC, like many churches, many organizations, continue to face the impact of inflation and increased operating expenses. But I think what your gracious giving continues to do, it enables us to not only maintain those ministries, but to sustain them. And we don't just want to maintain, we want to expand, we want to grow, we want to have a bigger footprint for the kingdom of God in the DMV. And you, my brothers and sisters, all of us together are helping to make that happen. And so I want to encourage you to continue to pray. Continue to pray as to how God might lead you and just seeing the people standing in both services, the earlier service, this service, standing to say, I'm in. I'm serving. I'm teaching. Again, it's the grace of God that is being displayed, displayed and I want to thank you for that. But I also want to remind you of the invitation. And if it sounds like a broken record, uh, forgive us. I think it is that important. So Dr. Fox stood out front and shared with you about our kickoff. This is my first kickoff here at National Presbyterian Church. And if I had to choose one word to describe what I see this congregation trying to do, I would use the word impressive. Impressive, because when you look at what's being offered in and through all of our teaching, the fact that it starts with the youngest from two years old all the way up, I find that impressive. And if you didn't read Dr. Fox's newsletter, or in the e-blast that went out on Wednesday, 
I would encourage you to read it. If you haven't signed up for the e-blast, let me encourage you to do so because what, what you are then going to find out is that God is at work in this church, not just on Sundays, but you'll see through the various activities that the Lord is at work. So I want you to read that e-blast again because what I see is that the GROW team is inviting us, inviting every one of us, whether you're online or you're in person at whatever stage, whatever age you are, to leave the sidelines and join one of the learning communities listed in the bulletin. And so we started today. And I attended the class on Romans with RV Seep. And I wish I could clone myself because when I look at the list of all the classes, I wish I could just go to all of them. But we have learning communities here for you young or old, and if you cannot join one of those Sunday learning communities, it's not for everyone, and that's okay. I want to encourage you to consider joining one of our small groups. Commit to a small group. Why am I pressing this? Because of the sake of the gospel, because of the important times that we're in, we want to see our blessed congregation grow in all possible ways, and I'm asking you this morning all of you to make a commitment, make a commitment this fall to your own spiritual growth and formation. And here's why, and I found this out over the many years, is that no one drifts into spiritual growth. It's not going to come up behind you and kind of knock you in the head and suddenly you are spiritually mature. Discipleship and spiritual growth require intentionality, so I want you to accept the invitation from Dr. Fox and the GROW team. I want you to look at that schedule, see if Sunday works for you, see if one of the small groups might work for you. I want you to choose. A little girl returned from school last week, and her mother asked her, did you learn anything? The little girl honestly said, well, apparently not because I have to go back tomorrow <laughs> and the next day and the next day and the next day. National, such is the case with learning the way of Jesus. Christmas and Easter participation simply won't cut it. We must keep coming back like that little girl the next day and the next day and the next day. Such is the case with Bible engagement. Understanding the Bible comes a little bit at a time, over a lifetime. And Judith and I have been reading the Bible now for quite a while. And one of the things we continue to do as a family is to pick out a small portion of the Bible each morning and just read it together. Sometimes it just goes this over our heads but other times it lands, and we talk about it, and we pray about it, because we know what we're hoping will happen is that I'll be finally become a better husband for this awesome wife that I have. And I hope she's feeling the same way too. We want to be better people. And if you've never read Nehemiah, a few people going out after the first service said to me, you know, I've never read Nehemiah before, and I said, great. 
Others said, I've read it before and I'm looking forward to reading it again. If you've never read it before, now is your chance. If you've read it before, I urge you to take up and read. And I would encourage you to read the Bible a little bit at a time because hunger is not satisfied by consuming all three meals in one sitting. Our bodies need portions, a steady diet to remain strong, and so does the soul. And then the blessing comes because when you read Scripture, hopefully God is then helping us to figure out how to put it into play in our lives. It's the same way with medicine, right? If you only read the label but ignore the pills, it's the same way with food. If you only read the recipe but never cook the ingredients, you won't be fed. So again, please accept the invitation. Don't be a spectator. The games start at noon. America's next church starts at noon, and those people are allowed to be spectators watching those 24 players beat each other up. But in the church, we don't have any spectators. And so I'm going to ask you to jump in, to engage, to taste, to try, and see what God can do in your life today. So let's just spend a few moments before we close our service by looking with these open, this opening chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Who was Nehemiah? And not much is known about him. We do know that his father's name is Hakaliah. We know that most likely his family was swept up in the destruction of Jerusalem by the marauding Babylonians and they were dislocated and taken away to a foreign land. At this point, we're, we're reading the book of Nehemiah. It's maybe 70 to 100 years after the exile. So we typically call books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and other parts of the Bible as post-exilic. These are people and their experiences coming out of the exile. You know what Nehemiah's name mean? His name means Yahweh has comforted. And Nehemiah lived up to his name. Do you know what your name means? He lived up to his name. He brought hope to the people of Jerusalem. God used them to mobilize people and resources to build and strengthen Jerusalem's protective walls. And so over the next few Sundays, we plan to do all we can to learn from this, this battle-tested servant of God. There is something in the book of Nehemiah for National Presbyterian Church in this season. And so if you have your Bibles open, and I would encourage you if you, if you didn't pick one up, to go ahead and pick up a copy of the Bible, whether you're online or in person, and just follow along. Let's just kind of move through the passage together. Take a look at verses 2 and 3. Two and three, because the entire book is really wrapped up in these verses. Think of this as the plot line to the book. Nehemiah asks two questions to his brother. It could be his literal brother, Hanani, or it could be a brother, a fellow Jewish brother. But he asks two questions to these folks who are coming back, and the answer that they gave to him triggered everything else in the book. 
God somehow used a dismal report. Nobody likes to hear bad news. But God used this bad news report to stir Nehemiah's heart for the glory of God and the restoration of Israel. And look at the two questions again. Verse 2, how are things going with the Jews who survived the awful, awful Babylonian exile? And the second question is, what's the latest in the, what's the latest with the city of Jerusalem? And the answer that Nehemiah heard, it just ripped his heart out. The answer was the survivors who escaped the captivity are in great trouble. The Hebrew word there literally means evil. It implies misery and distress and shame. And the second thing they said to him was the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And if you're looking at your Bible, just notice Nehemiah's reaction in verse 4 when he heard these words. He said, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Has that ever happened to you before? Has anything ever happened in your life that just literally wrecks your heart, brings you to the ground? Is there anything happening in your life this morning that is bringing you to your knees? You know, tomorrow, September 11th, marks 22 years since a group of terrorists commandeered commercial jets, three commercial jets, and used them as weapons of mass destruction. And they attacked the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and who knows where that other plane was going. We, it flew over Pennsylvania and then crashed somewhere in the middle of the state in Shanksville, PA. Do you remember where you were that day? Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember what, what was on your to-do list? On September 11th, I was on my way down to the church. And I say down because where we lived, we had to descend this hill somewhat to get to the church in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. It was a beautiful day, a sunny day. It was my wife's birthday. We had plans that evening. And right before I got to the church, she called me and said, a plane crashed into one of the towers. There was a season in my life when I lived in New York City and I worked on the 22nd floor of the World Trade Center, so I know that area very well. And I thought, oh, what a horrible thing. I wonder what happened to the pilot. How did he manage to crash into one of the towers? And then we later on heard that a second one hit the other tower. And the secretary walked in, my administ administrative assistant walked in and said, there's a third plane that's flying over Pennsylvania. And I immediately got up, went outside into the parking lot, and I did. I looked up into the sky because in terms of where they, they described the area, we weren't far from it, so I thought maybe I could see the plane. And then I went back in, and I decided I was going to send the staff home. I sent them home. I called the elders. I let them know what was going on, and I said to them, I think we ought to have a service. By the time I left and drove back home, I walked in just in time to look on the TV and see one of the towers collapsing. And that evening, 
That evening, it's as if everything stopped. We didn't know who would come, but people showed up that Tuesday evening, very impromptu to pray, to worship, and to do what Nehemiah did, look to the God of heaven. And then on Sunday, the Sunday after the devastation, every pastor in America changed their sermon. I did. The church was full. People just came. They needed a place where they could sit down and look to the God of heaven. And I would imagine that this place was filled to overflowing. We will never forget September 11, 2001. So many lives lost. People still grieving. So many sacrifices made. But I remember how America, and it was an election season, how our politicians put down their verbal swords, their politicking, and America came together as one nation under God. And of course, as the urgency and the pain and the sense of dread dissipated, for some, our nation then went back to business as usual. But we will never forget. I want you to notice a few things about Nehemiah's prayer. Because what Nehemiah's prayer does for us this morning, it reveals, it reveals intimate knowledge of God. And I would say to you this morning that there is a correlation between friendship with God and fervent, active prayer. I would, I would offer to you this morning that the people who pray the most know their God. And you see that here in Nehemiah's words, that he prayed and he fasted night and day. And what did he pray? And if you look at verses 5 through 11, you will see the guts of his prayer, that his prayer was deep. His prayer was wide. His prayer was contrite. His prayer was short, and it was heartfelt. And the prayer, my friends, it's rooted in God's covenant promises that he made with his people at Mount Sinai. This prayer, I would say to you this morning, is a precise summary of what we read in Deuteronomy 7 and 28, the blessings and cursings chapter. And Nehemiah, as he prayed, said, Lord, you did say that you would bless your people if they remained faithful to you. And you did say that the curses of the covenant would fall on your people if they broke covenant with you and that you would vomit them from the land. You would remove them from Canaan. And we know from Nehemiah's prayer that the covenant was broken. The covenant with God was broken. But not only that, it reads almost like the Lord's Prayer because he begins by almost saying, as Jesus said, when you pray, our Father... He lifts up the greatness of God. He lifts up and he acknowledges the greatness and the faithfulness of God, that God is good. But he also says that it is because of our actions that the judgment of God has now fallen 
upon us. We have not been faithful to the covenant. And what does he do? Look in verse 6. He implores God. And he uses very anthropomorphic phrases. God, that you would see. God, that you would hear. And it's just that way of saying, God, we want you to be present. Hear the prayer that we now make to you. And I love what he does in verse 7 because so often when there is trouble, we immediately want to lift up our pinky and, or not our pinky, but our index finger and point it somewhere as the source. Here's why we're in trouble. It's because of you. It's because of what you didn't do or it's because of what you did. Nehemiah does not do that. You look at verse 7. He owns the problem. He says, both I and my family have sinned. Chances are, Nehemiah was most likely born during the exile. If we're reading this 70 to 100 years after the Babylonians did their damage, Nehemiah was born in exile, and here he is taking full responsibility. I and my family have sinned. And he's praying not only for his sins, but the sins of his people. Look at, look at the rest of verse 7. He says, we have offended you deeply, referring to God. We failed to keep the commandments, the statutes, the commandments you commanded of your servant Moses. We have been unfaithful is really what he's saying. We have sinned in the light. We know what we should have done, but we didn't do it. Then you get to verse 8. And he uses the word remember. I've raised three children. Many of you have raised your children. Many of you are raising your children. It's not uncommon for children to come to their parents and say, Mom, Dad, you promised. The child might be thinking, you're you're on the verge of changing what you said you would do. And so the parents are on the hook to do exactly what they promised their kids. When Nehemiah says in verse 8, remember, is he suggesting that God is like us, that we are prone to forget? No, that's not what he's saying. God has not forgotten his covenant. I mean, that's one of the big storylines in the book of Nehemiah. The promises he made at Mount Sinai, he, he would fulfill them. No, I think what's going on is that Nehemiah is standing on the promises. Nehemiah is actually reminding himself of the character of God, and that is a wonderful th- thing to do when we pray. It's as if he's saying, Lord, you promised that if we return to you, if we return to you, you will keep your commandments. You will do them. You will gather your outcasts from under the farthest skies, and you will bring them to the place where your name dwells. And that's one of the big storylines of the book. God is always gathering his people, calling them back to their central task, and that is to worship God. And then the reader is told that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And I want you to know this morning that this is not a a minimum wage job. This is not a menial job. A cupbearer for the king is a position of power and honor. You have access. You have the air of the king. You're in the presence of the king. You have to be a person of impeccable character. You have to have good administrative skill. You have to be willing to put your life on the line and imbibe what you're offering to the king. So the cupbearer, a personal confidant, 
This is who Nehemiah was, a faithful God-fearer who happens to be a high-ranking official who enjoyed a position of power in the Persian government, but I say to you this morning that he was not intoxicated by his access to the halls of power. He was not tainted. He was not manipulated by the pagan environment in which he lived and he worked. Nehemiah, and you'll see it several times in our chapter, he refers to himself as a servant. I am a servant of God. That is his foremost identity. He is a God faring Jew. He is zealous for the glory of God, for the holiness of God, and for the worship of God. And Nehemiah is one in a long line of people who have stood in the halls of power because God put them there. You think of Joseph, you think of Moses, you think of Esther, you think of Daniel. These people are role models for people like us. And they're showing us that it is possible to work in places of, of extreme responsibility, powerful places with huge responsibilities, and yet remain submitted to God as the ultimate ruler of all. And these kinds of people are people of high integrity. They cannot be bought, they cannot be bribed, they cannot be manipulated because they know that their boss, their ultimate boss, is Almighty God. Why do I say this? Look at the very last verse, would you? He says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. There it is. And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is not the postman he's referring to. This is not the garbage collector he's referring to. He is referring to the pinnacle of power in the Persian administration. He is referring to our tax receipts, but he calls him this man. Was he being disrespectful? No. This man deserves all the respect. He's powerful, but Nehemiah has his coordinates right. He sees a man, and then he sees the God of heaven, and guess who he goes to first? He appeals to God. Let me close with three quick observations. And I want you to see these themes written large as you read the book, and I know you're going to read it. There's some really difficult parts. There's some boring parts. But just read all the way through till you get to chapter 13. One of the themes you will see is, are the themes of prayer and powerlessness. As we read Nehemiah, I want you to notice who has the power, who is using the power, and who is abusing power. Nehemiah had a position of power, but really he had no power. He and his people were peons. They were vassals. And if you look again, several places in the book, Nehemiah, before he does anything, he leads with prayer. His power, his superpower, if you will, it's his relationship to God. He leads from his knees. His power comes through his relationship with God. 
And you know, I'm just going to share with you in all honesty, I pray, we, Judith and I, we pray for this church just as you pray for us every day. My vision for National Presbyterian Church is that increasingly we would be a prayer-conditioned church. And aren't we blessed to have a place like this? Doesn't matter how hot it got outside this summer, into the 90s, on a Sunday, most of us sat very comfortably in this building. It's going to get cold, not Chicago cold, thank God. <laughs> but it's going to get cold, and you're still going to be able to come to church and sit in a room that's conditioned to mitigate the cold of winter. I am praying that we will be a prayer-conditioned church in our homes, in our small groups, in our leadership meetings, in our staff meetings, that we would be first and foremost a people of prayer, and it doesn't matter what the season is. Because in every church, there will be seasons. There will be these high, historic seasons in the life of a church. We are so high that we think we'll never be back in the valley. And a day will come when these great churches will cycle down into the valley where things are hard and things are challenging and things are confusing. And in these moments when things are hard and confusing, often we want to blame. We want to cannibalize. Many of us jump ship and we say, no, we don't want to be here anymore. It's too hard. But I'm asking you, friends, I'm asking you to pray that God will make us into a prayer-conditioned church so that when things are going well, we're still praising and praying. And when things are hard, and they will come, that we will be a people who are conditioned, like Nehemiah, to pray to the God of heaven. Would you help us become that church? Last Sunday evening, we visited with a small group here in this church in a home, and the food was great, but the fellowship was better. This group sang, and this group prayed, and the prayers were rising. So I know a lot, a lot of you are praying, and I want us to be a prayer-conditioned church. The second thing I want you to notice as you read Nehemiah is notice failure. In both Ezra and Nehemiah, which really should be read as one book, and in fact, throughout the whole Bible, people fail. So let me just go ahead and get ahead of you. My hand is up first. People fail. We all fail. We don't always live up to God's plan for our lives, but God promises that his presence, his covenant, his promises will never fail. And here you have the greatest powers on earth at that time, the superpowers, the Babylonians, the Persians, but they could not stop the faithful fulfillment of God's promises. God used these pagan rulers to fulfill and to restore. You get to the end of the book, and there are these high moments, but the book really ends with failure. Failure. I don't know what you're going through this morning. If you're like me, 
Your life is marked with a theme of failure. You have chapters that you can write on ways that you have struggled and ways in which you have failed. And I'm here to tell you this morning that we serve this mighty God who sees us, who hears us, who knows that we struggle. And this God will never leave us or forsake us. God will fulfill his promise in your life. The last big theme I want you to see as you read the book, I want you to learn the gospel through Nehemiah. I know that sounds like a shocker. You won't see Jesus' name in Nehemiah, but you will see inklings of the gospel in Nehemiah. When we read Nehemiah, I'm not interested in leadership nuggets. We're not going to go there. We want to see Jesus. Nehemiah goes out and he risks his life to bring his people back to Jerusalem. But he is really a type of Christ because Jesus, in a much greater way than Nehemiah did, at the cost of his life, went out of the city of Jerusalem and through his death and his resurrection brings us to this city of God without walls, this city of God not built with human hands, this city of God that will never fall. Nehemiah reminds us of Jesus. And in contrast to the use and the abuse of power that you see in the book, Jesus comes not with a sword. He comes with nails in his hands. He doesn't come to bring judgment. He comes to bear our judgment. And because of the fact that he is powerless, when the Romans stripped him and whipped him and spat upon him, and cursed him. He never said a mumbling word, the Negro spiritual says. And that's why Jesus then could bear our sin and overcome our death and destroy the power of the devil and bring us to God. And it is through Jesus' powerlessness that we are saved. And it's only, and I know this is hard to hear, I would imagine in all of our churches scattered throughout the DMV, our churches are filled with powerful, accomplished, esteemed individuals. But if you are to be saved, you have to leave that at the door and acknowledge powerlessness. Like Nehemiah, pray to the God of heaven and ask him, Lord, Save us. It's powerless people who will pray. I have nothing, Lord, to contribute but my sin. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And when you embrace your powerlessness and you seek the all-powerful one, and God will begin to move, and God will begin to save. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we acknowledge our need for you. Come, Lord Jesus, and save us. Help us in these difficult times. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. 
If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.